Welcome to the Evolved Caveman, where men learn to be successful and happy with your host, Dr. John Schinnerer, as he shares the most impactful ideas and practices for you to get the most from your relationships, your work, and from your life. Now, here's Dr. John. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with another episode of the Evolved Caveman, where I try to teach you how to be successful and happy. So this one is an interesting one to me because it's a topic that I've spoken with a lot of my high-performing executives about. And the topic is addicted to success. The success addiction. So let me ask you, what is more important to you? Is it more important to be special or to be happy? Do you want to be unique? Do you want to be remembered? Or do you want to be happy? And can you be remembered by shooting for happiness? So you see, when I was a senior in high school, I believe the goal of life was to do something unique, something special, to extend the edge of the envelope of humanity's knowledge, to explore uncharted terrain, to discover a new piece of knowledge or cure. And to do this, I drove myself mercilessly. I only stopped to rest when my body was so tired, it demanded rest by getting sick. Or my mind and spirit were so exhausted and spent that I would get depressed. And by the ripe old age of 17, I realized that maybe something was amiss with our definition of success. It seemed to me that the solitary pursuit of achievement, that relentless path to being uniquely special, diverts our attention from activities and relationships that make life truly happier and perhaps even more meaningful. I mean, think about your need to be successful, your pursuit of success. Now, imagine if you pursued smoking weed or snorting cocaine or drinking alcohol like you pursue success. That would present a pretty dark portrait of depression, disconnection, and isolation. And yet, the pursuit of success can be much like those more commonly thought of addictions. And it could lead to similar outcomes. The pursuit of success may be incompatible with a life of greater happiness and connection. Now, I've spoken to a lot of, quote, successful men over the years, men worth tens of billions, hundreds of millions. And many of these successful men have an addiction to success. And it is often associated with misery rather than happiness and fulfillment. And you've heard me talk about the man box culture on here before. And we men are socialized from the age of five on to succeed, to compete, to provide for the family. And in theory, these are good values. And I like to think of them as existing on a one to 10 scale. And as with most values or traits, it seems that we're happiest and most effective somewhere in the middle range of these spectrums rather than at either end. And one of the problems that I see with many of us is taking shortcuts, shortcuts to more nuanced thinking. For example, if we look at people as successful or unsuccessful, then in our mind, success is binary. You're either successful or you're not. It's on, off, good, bad, zero, or one. And if you think of it this way, I think it encourages you to relentlessly pursue 
this unattainable goal of success. And I say unattainable because one can always find other people with more. More money, bigger home, more homes, better cars, bigger jets, higher salary, younger, hotter wife, bigger biceps, longer dick, etc. Because ultimately, this does become a dick-swinging contest. And this is the hedonic treadmill effect at its worst. You see, we humans have a remarkable ability to adapt. We can and will adapt to everything, good or bad, and anywhere in between. That's the hedonic treadmill. Now, on the negative side, this can often be a good thing to ensure our survival. If we find ourselves in a difficult situation, such as losing the use of our legs due to a car crash, over time, studies show it's about a year, we will adapt to that situation and eventually will return to the same happiness set point that we had before the crash. On the other side, however, on that positive side, it brings up some problems. Let's say we get promoted, we get a fat raise, and buy a new top-of-the-line Tesla. Buddha, no barks. Shh, it's okay. You're okay, baby. <laughs> Sorry, that's the dog, Buddha. So let's say we get promoted, you get a fat raise, and buy a new top-of-the-line Tesla. Over time, say eight to 12 weeks, perhaps, we begin to adapt to these changes as well. And we begin to take them for granted. And as soon as we take the Tesla for granted, as soon as we get used to our newly promoted role in the company, they stop adding anything to our life satisfaction. We adapt. The change becomes unnoticed. And so we need more, more money, another promotion a more expensive car. Whatever the more is, we need that additional hit of dopamine. Of course, addiction to success would not qualify as a medical addiction, yet success has a number of addictive qualities. Being recognized by others, as I mentioned, gives us that hit of dopamine, the neurotransmitter in the brain that is responsible for pleasure and is implicated in all addictive behaviors. Being praised, being told good job, getting a check, getting a raise, all those leads to shots of dopamine. And what's more, the need for continual success looks much like addiction in terms of its impact on our relationships. And this is where the rubber really meets the road. Because one of the rules we learn about what it means to be a man is you're supposed to provide for the family. And on the face of it, this is a tremendous value. It's all good. But what happens when over the course of one, two, three decades, that value becomes so all-consuming, we get so addicted to the dopamine hits from work that we overweight the importance of our work. And so many men that I've spoken with find such comfort and validation at work that they get lost in it. Think about it. At work, we know what's expected of us. We're respected, we're admired, we're listened to, our voice matters. We tell others what to do, and they do it. At home, back with the partner and kids, we don't always know what's expected. Our role is less clear. We are ignored. We fumble, we stumble, we make more mistakes. 
We have to deal with the feelings of family members. We annoy and irritate others. This is worlds apart from what we experience at work. As a result, work often becomes preferable to home because it strokes our ego. Over time, the value of providing for family can become warped and malignant. If time and attention are the currency of relationships, then many men are failing the most important people in their lives. We have to travel for business, and so we miss anniversaries, and we miss soccer games and school plays. We prioritize work over family again and again. And the message we spend with our time and our actions is often that people are work or pardon me, people at work are more important. And gradually, family members grow resentful, angry, and distant. Studies show that many people will work 70, 80, even 100 hours a week and knowingly give up their own well-being simply to continue getting those dopamine hits via work success. So again, I ask you, would you rather be special or would you rather be happy? I found that many men I've worked with will land on the special side of that coin. Not everyone can accomplish something special, they tell me. Anyone can be happy. It takes real grit to succeed. I want to be remembered after I'm gone. These are some of the rationalizations I've heard. And so we put off self-care, we put off rest, we put off spending time with loved ones for a day sometime down the road in the distant or not-so-distant future. And sadly, that day never seems to come. I mean, don't get me wrong, success works great to attract a partner until it implodes your marriage due to the myopic pursuit of more, 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 more. One of the questions I ask my clients who are worth tens or hundreds of millions is, when is enough enough? When is enough enough? When does the pursuit of more cease? When do you possess enough fame, wealth, or material items that you can share your attention and your time with your partner and your children? Part of the problem is that due to the man box socialization process, the culture that we are raised in, men are cut off from two-thirds of the emotional spectrum. It's not that our emotions left us. We have actively tried to shut down our emotions. We are taught to be stoic, don't feel, and yet we are still human. We still feel. We never stopped feeling. We just stopped listening. Our emotions didn't leave us. We left them. Here, here's how it works. <clears throat> Simply, growing up, if we show too much fear or sadness, someone around us, usually a friend or a peer, will say something like, dude, stop being such a bitch. Don't be a little girl. Or stop being such a pussy. Now, all of these insults send the same harmful message. Don't be feminine. And you get that a few times and you're like, shit, that hurts. I don't want to feel that anymore. I'm never showing that again. I'm going to jump back in the man box. 
On the other side of the emotional spectrum, if we show too much joy or love, romanticism, excitement, silliness, or flamboyance, we get something like, dude, stop being so gay. Or don't be such a fag. The message here is don't be homosexual. And again, you get that once, twice, three times, you're like, shit, that hurts. I don't like that. And we jump back in the man box. And we are disconnected from the vast majority of our emotions. And remember, Antonio Damasio says, we are not thinking beings that feel, we are feeling beings that think. In other words, feelings are primary. And as a result, we're left with three emotions that we can publicly display without fear of hurt or embarrassment. And men hate to be embarrassed. Here they are. Number one, lust. She's so hot, I do her. Oh my gosh, that ass looks fine in those jeans. Stress, number two. Because when I tell you, evolved caveman listeners, I am so freaking stressed, it implies that I'm busy and important. And the big one, the third one, anger. Some degree of anger. Annoyance, frustration, irritation, rage. Anger is safe for us. No one questions us when we're pissed off. And most of our emotions get channeled through the anger lens. The problem here is, if we are so emotionally stunted that we can only recognize a mere handful of emotions, then would we even begin to recognize when we are happy? Do we even know when we're happy? My answer is no, we don't. We can't. Happiness is inherently an emotional experience. And if we can't recognize the quiet whispers of positive emotions, such as awe or relaxation or contentment or pride, we have no shot at happiness. And as a reminder, it's not your fault. If you are a man listening to this right now, it is not your fault. You did not ask to be socialized in this manner. It just happens. And I can go into the why of why it happens, but that's for another time. My belief is that it is our responsibility, however, to learn tools to evolve past this socialization. We need to have the ability to switch gears to best meet the needs of a particular situation. There are different parts of ourselves that we can bring to the negotiation table compared to date night with our partner, compared to helping our four-year-old daughter who just fell and skinned her knee. Different emotional skills are required in each of those situations, but most men only have one gear to meet all of them. And we flounder as a result. And this is why I teach men to be successful and happy. I've just seen too many men who are successful and miserable. And that is totally unacceptable to me. It doesn't have to be that way. And as I said, I used to seek to be special. After decades of studying psychology and happiness and philosophy, I now seek areas where I am similar to others. I look for ways to build connection, bridges between myself and others. I don't go by doctor. Well, I guess I do for the podcast, but when I'm with clients, I just say, call me John. I'm trying to kick out that pedestal. I don't want there to be differences between us. 
So let me share a story from my past. Years ago, I would present monthly at a continuation high school. And, you know, the students there were students who had failed in traditional high school for any number of reasons. Poor grades, poor attendance, drugs, pregnancy, you name it. So I would go there and present once a month on things like psychology, emotions, positive psychology. And one day I was there and I'm walking to the room to begin my hour-long presentation. And the school principal, Lucy Daggett, who's an amazing woman, was telling me that there was a new student at school. And she had been there only for a week or so. She was an African-American female. No one had been able to connect with her due to her anger. She had bounced from group home to group home in some rough cities, had no family, and was apparently a difficult case to reach. And we're walking and talking, and I'm thinking to myself, why is she telling me this now? Because I'm trying to focus on my talk. So we get to the room where the whole school of kids is gathered, and I start my presentation. And I got no more than two sentences into my talk when a young Black woman stands up and announced, I got a question for you. I'm Black. I'm female. I'm poor. I live in a group home. I have no family. Why should I listen to anything you have to say? Think, 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 John, think fast. So after I unclenched my sphincter, here's what I said. Great question. And you're absolutely right. We are different on many levels. I'm white, bald, middle-aged. I live at home with a family. So on those levels, we are different. And perhaps on those levels, you shouldn't listen to me. And here's what else I can tell you. I've been studying the mind and emotions for over 20 years. And everything you have ever felt in your life, I too have felt. Rage, shame, guilt, fear, stress, sadness, awe, happiness, joy, love, and more. Now, the reasons for the emotions might be different, but the emotions themselves are the same. And I have some stuff I'm here to teach you about, about how to be happier. It's free. You can try it out. If it works for you, great. If not, you've lost nothing. So try it for yourself. And with that, I rolled back into the presentation. Now, I can't say what moved that young lady to soften and to change. However, shortly after that, she began making an effort to get to school on time. And she would have to take like three buses to get to school in the morning. She began trying in her classes. She got involved in student government. And within a year and a half, she was the commencement speaker at graduation. And where at one point, no one thought she would graduate high school, she was now going to Sacramento State for college. And to me, that is the power of looking for connection, looking for ways in which we're the same. Because to me, it's emotion which binds us. It's our stories. I'm not looking for ways to be special. I'm looking for ways to connect, really authentically connect on meaningful levels with people. Back in 1938, researchers at Harvard started a longitudinal study where they tracked 238 Harvard men, sophomores at the time, and they followed them for 80 years. It's one of the world's longest studies of adult life. Only 19 of those men are still alive now, and they're in their mid-90s. 
And it's spun off others. They followed their children. They followed women after this, after a while, after we got less sexist. But the idea was to find out how early life experiences influence health and aging over the lifespan. And some of these men went on to become successful businessmen, doctors, lawyers. Others ended up schizophrenic or alcoholics. One even ended up as president of the United States of America, John F. Kennedy Jr. The most surprising finding from this longest study around is the powerful impact that our relationships and how happy we are in our relationships have on our health. While taking care of your body is important, no doubt, taking care of your relationships is equally as important. Close relationships, more than money or fame, is what keeps us happy and healthy throughout life. Good relationships help delay physical and cognitive decline. They protect us from the inevitable difficulties of life. And they are a better predictor of happiness than social class, intelligence, or even your genes. The people who are the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. Marital satisfaction has a protective effect on people's mental health. Those who kept warm relationships got to live longer and happier. Those who were loners often died earlier. Loneliness kills. It's as problematic as smoking and alcoholism. And according to lead researcher George Vailant, the key to healthy aging is relationships, relationships, relationships. And when asked to summarize the most powerful finding about happiness from 80 years of studying these men, he replied, happiness is love. The research also crushed the idea that people's personalities cannot be changed after age 30. So keep in mind, it is never too late to change. And to do so, you have to make the decision that change is possible. All right, back to this idea of addiction to success. The biggest problem with this approach to life is that success is much like Sisyphus, pushing that boulder up the mountain, only to have it rolled down where he must start the process over again and again. For those relentlessly pursuing success, their goals can never be satisfied. You'll never feel, quote, successful enough. You'll never be rich enough. You get a short dopamine high from reaching one goal, then it's immediately on to the next goal. And we have to keep running at high speed on the treadmill to avoid feeling like we're falling behind. And this is exactly why numerous studies show successful people are jealous or even envious of more successful people. Successful people are jealous of more successful people. I've seen it over and over. My client has a $40 million private jet, but his friend has an $80 million jet. He wants the $80 million jet. My client has a 25,000 square foot house in Dubai, but this other guy has a 30,000 square foot house in Napa. I want the 30,000 square foot house in Napa. It never, never ends. 
And this dynamic will bury your happiness in the backyard right next to your kid's pest pet hamster circa 2016. So get off the treadmill. You can pursue success to an extent. Just don't be a nine or 10 on that 10 point scale. What's that you're saying? What you can't? It's difficult? Yes, it is hard. Because your whole identity has been wrapped up your whole adult life in succeeding to impress others, in succeeding to run away from your own feelings, in succeeding to get the next tiny dopamine hit. This is, after all, a relationship that you have with success, where your lady, success, makes you feel good about yourself. Success whispers in your ear that you are enough for the moment. Success is the only one in life who can make you happy for the moment. And there is a little bit of withdrawal from the addiction. And I've worked with elite athletes for years, and studies show an increase in depression and anxiety among elite athletes upon retirement. It's inevitable. I have seen this hold true for 100% of the elite athletes I've worked with. I see it 100% of the time when my high-level executives retire and start golfing. They pine for the old days. So you see, the, the man box culture valorizes workaholism. And this makes it easy to slip into mindless habits ending in addiction to success. Because in that way, we can run away from how we feel. And at some level, isn't everything we do an attempt to escape how we feel? Exercise, sex, success. Alcohol, weed, coke, psychedelics, shopping. But if you've recognized yourself in this podcast, keep your chin up. It's never too late to retrain your brain, to develop new habits, to rekindle those important relationships. It's never too late to work towards greater happiness in your life. So here are four beginning steps you can take to break the vicious cycle of success addiction. Step one, make a decision to prioritize happiness over success. Regardless of how successful you are, you won't find lasting happiness running on the hedonic treadmill of your latest achievement. Happiness and other positive emotions are found in the mundane, simple pleasures, which you understood well back when you were six, seven, eight, nine years old. Walking with a friend, appreciating the beauty in nature, climbing a tree, a sunrise, going for a hike rowing a boat, being around water, drawing, kicking a ball, getting a massage, taking a nap. Any of these will increase your satisfaction with life far more than working that additional hour. So practice letting go of your hyper-competitive nature, that need to win every time at all costs. Realize that binary view of the world, winning or losing, is part of what's contributing to your misery. The world is far more nuanced and complex than simplistic binaries, on, off, black, white, rich, poor. Step number two, look for meaning in serving others. There is no better motivation, in my opinion, than finding ways to serve others if you want to be happier. This could be volunteering or working with a company that serves the greater good. It could be spending more time teaching your children things. 
And studies show that the number one predictor of a happy man is meaningful work. So if you're finding your work meaningless, set out for a change. Step three, be aware of when you are making upward social comparisons. That's when you compare yourself to someone who is better off than you in some way. Bigger house, nicer car, more muscles, hotter wife, more money, etc. And we do this all the time without much effort and without much awareness. And it's a huge part of the dick swinging contest that is the measurement of traditional success. However, studies have found over and over that social comparisons rob us of our happiness. They make us feel less than, unworthy. Far better to practice downward social comparisons in your mind in which you remind yourself how many people are less fortunate than you in some way. For example, going back to high school, let's say you scored a 95 on a math test. Most high achievers will make the upward social comparison, find the two kids in class who scored better than them. Let's say they got a 97 and a 98. And this makes them feel lousy, less smart, less happy, less proud, even though they got a solid A. It's far better to be grateful and compare yourself to the 27 other students who scored lower than your 95 so you can enjoy your effort and your grade. And finally, step four. If you've damaged any relationships in your ongoing campaign for never-ending success, now is the time to apologize for the hurt you've caused and explain that you are going to work to make things right and get off the treadmill. This is notably a, a much longer topic than we have time for here. However, the most effective strategy is to begin by being present for your loved one's activities. No phone, no calls no business trips, just watching, supporting them, being by their side. In closing, let me just say that success in and of itself is fine. I have no problem with anyone succeeding or making a shit ton of money or becoming famous. It's a matter of degree. We have to keep in mind what our priorities are, what our values are, and act accordingly. And always remind yourself of what is truly most important in your life. And that's your nearest and dearest relationships. If this was helpful to you, please like, rate, review, share, scream it from the the mountaintops. If this was not helpful to you, that's okay. You don't need to do a damn thing. This is Dr. John signing off. I hope you have a successful and happy week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 